got your Bible, turn with me to Matthew, Matthew chapter 21. We're taking a break from our journey through Exodus just for the next couple of weeks. And along with churches right across the world, we're just going to spend this Sunday and next Sunday contemplating and thinking through Passion Week, thinking of Jesus' journey from his entrance into Jerusalem um, all the way to the cross, through his resurrection, and all the way to Pentecost as well. That journey is around 57 days from uh, the triumphal entry to Pentecost. And we're going to just walk our way through. And honestly, guys, the, the hope of the prayer is, um, as we spend some time just thinking about Easter and doing what we do as a church, doing what we do as Christians, uh, spending some time thinking about the cross and thinking about the resurrection, I want to just encourage us to... To not fall into the normal pattern of this is Easter, this is what we do, we think about the cross, we think about the resurrection. Um, it can almost become like an event on the calendar, Easter. And I really want to encourage us this week and, and next week in particular to see Easter for what it is. It is a time to remember, it is a time to reflect on Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection and his ascension. But Easter, really, when you look at it in the scriptures, Easter is a missional event. Easter is, is a primer for the mission of the church. Like, without Easter, we wouldn't be here, right? Like, we all get that. Um, and so in each of our individual story, Easter has an important part to play. And I really want to just encourage us and push us and, and just gently nudge us towards seeing the glory of the gospel over these two weeks, seeing the beauty of the perfect life of the Son of God, Jesus, his atoning work on the cross, his glorious resurrection from the dead, his ascension to the Father, and to see that rightful worship in light of that is not just to proclaim and praise him and extol him with our lips, it is to take the truth of the Easter story and to go and tell other people about it. Like, I, I kind of love these Sundays when there's just a few of us, I honestly do. Because it means that we can just talk a little bit more frankly and a little bit more personally and a little bit more like we are, like just brothers and sisters. And I, I hope that you guys feel something of maybe what I feel when, when we come in on a Sunday afternoon. And there's a sense of, particularly on days like today, like we were having a bit of a conversation before, the football's on this afternoon. If you don't know, this is the biggest football match of the year. It is, Liverpool against City. And the whole of the city will be watching this, apart from us here, maybe a few other people who gather in the afternoon. And I hope when you come into to Liberty, I hope genuinely that you come in with a sense of, of anticipation, a sense of joy, a sense of you are going to be hearing from God. He's going to be doing a work uh, by his spirit to encourage you, to refresh you, to, to, to build you up in the faith. You're going to enjoy being with God's people. But I also hope, and this will always be our story as we grow, which we will. I also hope that you have a sense of, oh God, would you just bring in more people? Like, why are the pubs filled this afternoon and we've got empty seats? Like, I really hope that there's just some part of you that just has a deep longing for God to, to fill this room and to fill every other church that's in this city. Because there are spare seats in every church in this city. And there are more services that churches could run in this city. And yet, the pubs are spilling out this afternoon. And really, guys... I, I really just want to bring us to a place over these next couple of weeks to see the glory of the cross and to see in light of that what it is to worship, which is yes to praise him, 
And yes, to take that good news to the people around us in this city because they need it. And so this afternoon, as we think about the triumphal entry, I want us to just move through three particular events that will help us come to that place where we see the beauty of the gospel, but we also see the desperate need of our city to hear, to see, to take hold and to have the eyes of faith to believe in it. Three movements. And in each movement, we're going to see a city, we're going to see a crowd and we're going to see the Christ. The city, the crowds and the Christ. And the city that we're going to see, the city that we're going to find God's people in and and the Christ in in particular is Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the focal point of Passion Week, right? Like that's the real hub where everything's going on. And these three movements are going to go through uh, uh, three kind of events in Jerusalem. And if you know a bit about Jerusalem, you'll know it's in the Middle East. It's it's a relatively small town, about 80,000 people. So about the size of Egbeth. Imagine Egbeth, uh, but on a sunny day. That's kind of how many people uh, would normally be in uh, Jerusalem. And I just want to read, we know this story. I know all of us who are here will know this story. We're familiar with it. I want to read just a little bit of the account of how Jesus comes into this city. Matthew chapter 21. Starting at 8, uh, verse 8 to 11. Jesus has given instructions to his disciples to go and get a donkey to bring it to And they bring it, they put their cloaks on it. And in verse 8, Matthew says this. Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road. And others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, whole city was stirred up saying who is this and the crowd said this is the prophet jesus from nazareth of galilee let me just pray again for us before we carry on father thank you for your word thank you for the truths that we've confessed and sung and heard already this afternoon thank you that we are able to come before your throne and plead with you and Lay our requests before you. Thank you that in your son, we we see our saviour, we see our Lord, we see our Christ. We see the gospel as something that is beautiful towards us, not, not something that is a truth beyond us. Thank you that it is our story, it is our song. We thank you for your word, Father, that we have before us now. We pray that you would speak to us through it. Thank you that your word, as you promise, is living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. So change us, transform us, we pray, by the power of your spirit, and in the name of your son. Amen. Amen. So as these crowds are gathering, there's more people in Jerusalem than would usually be there. So typically there's 80,000, but at this time of the year, during Passover, lots of friends and relatives and people who would live outside the city are traveling in to enjoy this, this Passover week. So there would have been hundreds of thousands of there, maybe. And Matthew records Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And when we read that, I know we're all kind of used to the story, so we're, we're kind of comfortable with it, but it does sound a bit odd, like in 21st century Western civilization, someone riding into a city, coming into Egbeth on a donkey sounds a little bit funny, but, but this is how kings would arrive. 
In the Old Testament, you look at the Old Testament kings. When a new king was inaugurated, they would come into the city on a donkey. Jesus doing this, he's, he's symbolizing something. He's making a statement of something. And the people who are watching know the statement that he's making. Here comes the king. This man has come and proclaimed himself as a king. This is a significant moment and the crowd are getting in on it as well. Some of them go and they rip off palm leaves and they lay them down in front of the donkey, making a bit of a red carpet for the king as he comes into the city. And now by this point in Matthew's gospel and this point in the gospels, people knew who Jesus was. They might not have seen him as their Lord and their Christ, but they knew of him. He'd been teaching in the temple. He'd been performing miracles and healings. Word had got around about him. And finally, he's making his big reveal. He's showing himself. He's kind of kept some of his, his identity and the work that he's come to do. A little bit of it hidden until this moment. But now everything's being revealed. He's revealing himself as the king, the people's king, the king that they've been waiting for, the king that they've been longing for. And then he comes into Jerusalem. And the crowd are loving it. There's a real sense of excitement in Jerusalem. You can pick it up from the page as you read it through the Gospels. They're throwing palm leaves in front. Some of them are taking their cloaks off and they're throwing them in front of, of the donkey as Jesus comes through. And it's a little bit like if, you, if you're like a, a real fanboy or a fangirl of, of a celebrity and you go and, and maybe they give you a little memento or you touch them and, oh, I'm never going to wash my hands because I've, I've touched this. That's a little bit like what's going on here. They lay their cloaks in front of the donkey and as Jesus goes past, they get to take their cloaks back I've, I've got the donkey that Jesus was on, the donkey that the king, I've got it. There's a little bit of excitement going on. There's a little bit of anticipation going on. The atmosphere would have been electric. The people are singing, they're dancing. Hosanna, save us, God, save us. Hear our prayer, save us, they sing. And for many people, maybe this is the first time that they've met Jesus as they travel in for Passover. Maybe they've come from outside of town and they're seeing everything that's going on and they're getting caught up in the excitement. And the result of all of this excitement, Matthew says in verse 10, is the whole city was stirred up. The whole city was stirred up. You see, Jesus approached. Save us, God. Save us, God. There's excitement. They throw down their cloaks. And the whole city was there. We long for that for Liverpool, right? The people of our city would have a sense of, 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 of their need for God to save them. And they would just see something of, of that salvation being found in Jesus. And they would be stirred up by it. And they would be awakened by it. And there would be anticipation. You know, yesterday I was driving into town, picking Elizabeth up. She was out for a, a works night out. And it was Grand National Night. People everywhere. And I don't know whether you ever watch it. I don't know why I kind of watch it every year. I'm not into horse racing at all. But there's just something about the Grand National that you have to watch. And seeing tens of thousands of people getting whipped up and excited. Or if you're into the golf, watching Tiger Woods through Augusta this week. People screaming and shouting after him. And the football this afternoon. People will be shouting and heckling and probably moved to tears. They're stared by what they see. They're caught up in what they see. It's a horse, for goodness sake. It's just a man playing golf. 
hope that our city would be stirred up by something that's really going to change them. And really going to move them. And move them out of a place of darkness into a place of light. Folks, that is what we want, isn't it? That our city would be stirred up and awakened and excited by the person and the work of Jesus. In Jerusalem on this day, there's excitement. There's intrigue. Who is this man? Who is this man? This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. There's intrigue. There's something about celebrity with Jesus. People are desperate to be associated with it, so they throw their cloaks down. Something about Jesus that's compelling, that people are drawn towards. And the same is true in our culture today. See, our culture is nervous and it's skeptical about Christianity, but there is something that is still warming about Jesus to people. It might not be the Jesus that we know and love, but there is something about the Jesus that they think they know and love, that they, they want to. They love the peacekeeping Jesus. They love the wise sage Jesus, the the good example Jesus. They love the Jesus who's happy for you to be whatever you need to be as long as you're happy. They love that kind of Jesus. So many religions love the prophet Jesus, don't they? So many people love their own personal Jesus. You see, the crowds love Jesus as long as he conforms to their ideals. But this crowd... Are easily swayed. Turn over a few pages to Matthew 27. Matthew 27, verse 15. Jesus has been arrested. Pilate, the Roman governor, brings Jesus out to the crowd. And now you can do some work in the history and piece things together, like the geography, like some people have done. And would they have had enough time to get from that crowd to that crowd? Would it have been the same people? Well, I'm sure there would have been at least some people who were both in the crowd on Palm Sunday and are in this crowd on Good Friday. The gospel writers want us to see a shift and a change in the people over these five days. The crowds who are shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna! Save us, God! Save us, God! Now find themselves in front of of Jesus as he is led out by Pilate. And we see, and we're going to see, they scream for his death. How have the city gone from being stared about Jesus, intrigued by Jesus, compelled about Jesus, to being at a point where they are completely rejecting him? Well, firstly, because they're listening to lies. Pilate brings Jesus out to the crowd on Good Friday and he asks in verse 22 of chapter 27, what should I do with him? What should I do with this man, Jesus? And their answer is, let him be crucified. This is crazy. Why would they want Jesus dead? What has he done to them? Jesus has only in all of his ministry shown himself to be kind and gracious and merciful. He comes into Jerusalem not looking for war. He comes in riding on a donkey. He comes as a king of peace. He comes in in God's answer to, to save his people. That's how Jesus presents himself. He doesn't come staring up trouble. He's not an insurrectionist. 
And yet the people have gone from crying Hosanna to now crying crucify. Why would they want him dead? Well, because they're listening to lies. Verse 20, amongst the crowds, Matthew says that the chief priests and the elders are there. And they're right in the midst of the crowds and they've got an important job to do. They're passing out lies. They're convincing the crowd to to side with them. They're convincing the crowd to go along with their false testimony. They're leading the crowd away from belief. And that's been the religious leaders game all along. To draw them away from, from Jesus. To prevent them from belief. To bring them away from the truth. Like if you just flick back a page to Matthew 26. Jesus is at his trial. And the religious leaders are looking around for, for any dirt that they can get on Jesus. Just, just the, the tiniest bit of, of, of falsehood or, or a mistake that he's made. And they can't find anything. It's brilliant, right? There's nothing. They have no dirt on him at all. And so what do they do? They bring in two false witnesses. And they say, okay, just feed them with lies. Just tell them about something that you think he might have done. And so this one guy, he stands up and he says, yeah. I heard Jesus say this. He said, I am able to to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. That's what he says in verse 61. Jesus said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Now he is talking about an actual event, but that isn't what Jesus said at all. In John chapter 2, verse 19, this is what Jesus actually said. And, and it was this time, you know, when Jesus is in the temple and he throws over the tables and there's all the commotion. And the religious leaders come and they confront Jesus. And Jesus says to them this, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. So this false witness says, Jesus said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. What Jesus actually said was destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now they're close but there's no cigar. They're not the same. They're subtly different. Jesus never said he'd destroy the temple. He said, if you destroy this temple, I will raise it up in three days. You see, there are lies being whispered in the crowd. There are lies being whispered to all of us that would encourage us to reject Jesus. You see, one of the reasons that the pubs are for this, and don't get me wrong, I'd love to be watching the football this afternoon. I would. I'm not saying that it's a bad thing. I'm trying to help us to reflect on, on why it is that we find so many people in our city, five billion people across this world, rejecting Jesus. And one of the primary reasons is, is that they are listening to lies. It's not just them, we are as well. How many times when we find ourselves in difficult situations do we hear that inner voice within us? You know that that kind of voice that speaks to us and and tries to convince us that that God isn't what he says he is? Like when we find ourselves in that difficult situation, we just hear that voice rising up. Did did God really say that age-old word right from the garden? Did God really say? I thought God said he was going to protect you. I thought God said he was going to care for you. I thought God said he was going to bless you. We are fed lies every day. But folks, the best way to determine what is a lie in those moments is to know the truth. So can I encourage you to soak yourself with scripture every day. Sit under the preaching of God's word every week and know the truth. Not just for yourself when you hear those lies coming, 
but so that you can counter the lies that are being told to others. For the hundreds of thousands of people in our city this afternoon who are rejecting Jesus, they need to hear the truth. Our friends, our colleagues, our relatives, they all have certain perceptions of who Jesus is and what he has done and what he will come to do. And much of what they believe has been fed to them as lies. Here's the way to approach them, folks. We don't confront them and say, that's not truth. A better way to come alongside them is, okay, tell me about the God that you're struggling to believe in. Tell me what it is that you believe about him that you don't like. Ask them that question. And as they tell you, you're able to bring them to the truth. The God that you believe in isn't the God that I believe in. Jesus would never say that. Jesus would never do that. So many are listening to lies and what they need is the truth. Lies draw us away from believing. And secondly, so do powerful voices. Back into Matthew 27 and verse 1. Matthew makes a point of saying that, that as all of this has taken place, as Jesus is being led out before Pilate, the chief priests and the elders of the people are right in the midst of it. And the chief priests and the elders, they were the people of influence in the city. As we just saw when we get to verse 20, they're persuading the crowd. They're getting alongside the crowd. They're they're working with the crowd to reject Jesus. And instead, we'll see in a minute, to choose a criminal to be released. Now, these are a small minority. This was probably a big crowd. And just a handful, maybe a few dozen men who are amongst the crowd. They're a small minority, but they have a powerful voice. And this small minority determines the culture and they shape how the city of Jerusalem are thinking. And we live in that same culture now. There are a small but powerful minority in our city, in our country, who are shaping our culture and will feed us all sorts of things that might sound like truth, but in the end they are leading us away from human flourishing. You know, we've had people who've come to liberty or entertained coming to liberty who've walked away from coming and joining us because they believe that um, they believe that the christian church is sexist or they believe that the christian church is homophobic or the christian church keeps you from freedom that's not true they're all lies and i know this week a, a friend of ours a church that's very close to the liberty church um, who've been cancelled from doing assemblies in a local school because a couple of parents in the school that they were in had concerns that the gospel was oppressive to gay people. And so the church said, I'm sorry, you can't, the school has said you can't come in anymore. Two or three parents, a small minority, but a powerful minority who are shaping the culture, who are influencing how we think. And we know because we know the gospel, the gospel is a message of true freedom. But there will be powerful voices and there are powerful voices in our city, in our country. that create narratives and make noises to promote a different kind of gospel or to undermine or discredit the gospel of Jesus. So let's say don't go with the Christians. Don't go to that church because they're homophobic. Don't go with the Christians because they're sexist. Don't go with the Christians because they will keep you from freedom. And this powerful minority will keep many from coming to Jesus. But we're not immune to it either. 
they will also shake our belief. We live in that world. Every time we entertain sin, folks, every time we we close our ears to walking in obedience to Jesus, we are listening to the prevailing voice of our culture, which says freedom isn't found in Christ, it is found in yourself. Do what you want to do. Live how you want to live. That's where you find freedom. We need to know that when they're immune to the voices of the chief priests and elders, they're influencing us too. So when you see a brother or sister struggling in their belief, come alongside them and ask them, brother, what voices are you listening to? Sister, who's telling you what, what is right and what is wrong? Who's shaping your thinking? It just doesn't sound like it's Jesus. Let's talk about that. Here's the last thing that draws us away from believing. And we see this every day. Foolish choices. Chapter 27, verse 21. Pilate leads Jesus out. I really think he doesn't want to offer Jesus up. He's trying to find a way out. And so he comes to the crowd and he says to them, okay, let's do this. I'll give you a choice. I'll let you free either Jesus or this man Barabbas. And a few verses earlier in verse 16, Matthew makes sure that we know who this guy Barabbas is. He's a notorious prisoner. So I honestly think Pilate's like, well, this is going to be a no-brainer. Here's Jesus, who's done no wrong. You've trumped up some charges, which I don't believe. Like, there's nothing against him. His account is clear. Here is Jesus. You've already done him some harm. And here's Barabbas, a notorious insurrectionist. I'll let one of them go. Which one do you want me to be released? What do they say in verse 21? Take Barabbas. Even Pilate can't believe it. Verse 22. What's to do with Jesus? Who's called the Christ? Let him be crucified. Like there isn't even a discussion about it. We'll take Barabbas will destroy Jesus. This is crazy, isn't it? He's a notorious prisoner. Days earlier, the city just welcomed in Jesus as a peaceful king. They adored him. They idolized him. They threw their coats down. Some of them were probably wearing the cloaks that are covered in the dust as the donkey trampled over. Now they want him dead. See, the religious leaders have convinced the crowd. And they are convinced that they are, they are determined to take hold of a certain way of life. And if Jesus stands in the way, then they'll just get rid of him. The religious leaders have created a culture that fostered that city were following the voices of a powerful minority which led them to a place of making reckless decisions 
honestly, their decision just doesn't make any sense. They wanted a murderer back in their community rather than a king who came in peace. So when we think about it as believers, and we can think of the pubs being filled this afternoon and the stands being filled at the National yesterday and all the crowds wherever they gather and our seats being empty. Doesn't make sense. Like, why aren't our churches being filled? Because of the blindness of unbelief. The blindness of unbelief leads us to making reckless choices. Like, just think about the offer that Jesus makes to the world. Jesus stands in front of the world and says, okay, I've got a gift for you. Here's life instead of death. Here's light instead of darkness. Here is heaven instead of hell. Here's peace instead of anxiety. Here's forgiveness instead of hostility. Here is righteousness instead of sin. Here is freedom over your guilt. Here is beauty over your shame. Here, have flourishing instead of decay. Here's eternal life instead of judgment. And listen, I will die for you so that you can take it. You don't have to do anything. It comes at no cost. I will give it all for you. I will make a way for you to receive it. All you have to do is hold out your hands and take it. That is the offer. And five billion people across the world today are saying, no thanks, we'll take Barabbas. How can that be? they're listening to lies they're following the powerful minority and they are blind to the beauty of Jesus what they need is truth what they need is truth and what they need is the spirit of God to open their eyes there is no other way there's one last scene in the city of Jerusalem that I want us to be left with it's found in Acts chapter 2 if you just turn there with me Acts chapter 2 the palm leaves of Jesus' triumphal entry have withered and blown away Barabbas has been released into the community the crowds of Good Friday have, have gone and they're replaced by another crowd in Acts chapter 2 this is the day of Pentecost the Holy Spirit has come and filled God's People. The disciples are filled with the Spirit. They're empowered. And Peter stands up and he gives his first sermon. And at the end of his sermon, he comes to verse 36 of, of chapter 2 and he says this. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, talking about Jesus, both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. No doubt there were some people in that crowd who were there on Good Friday, who were there on Palm Sunday and are now here on Pentecost Sunday. And Jesus says, listen, Jesus, who you crucified, he is Lord and he is Christ. And the response of the people in verse 37 is belief. Luke says they are cut to the heart and they ask Peter, what should we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, all of you, 
and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. On Palm Sunday, the crowd that the Christ finds himself amongst, they are captivated. On Good Friday, they are deceived. But on Pentecost Sunday, they're converted. And it is true conversion. This isn't just a secular faith that is following a cultural Jesus. Back in, in Palm Sunday, in Matthew's account, remember how they see Jesus? They see him as a prophet. That's how they see him. And here he comes, he, he's a prophet. It's, it's Jesus from Galilee, Nazareth. It's, it's a prophet coming on amongst us. But now they are to confess him as their Lord and their Christ. And that, folks, is the only way that Jesus will be received. There is no other way. He is to be our Lord and our Christ. He's not just a nice person, a good teacher. He's not just a prophet. He is our Lord and our Christ. He's our ultimate authority and he is our saviour. That's what it means to be our Lord and our Christ. And he is Lord of everything or Lord of nothing. And he is saviour of all of our sin or saviour of none of it. He is completely our Lord and absolutely our saviour when we believe. People hear the truth from Peter. The Holy Spirit mercifully opens their eyes and they see Jesus for who he is and they believe. And their conversion is real. We did this in September, Acts 2.42. They devote themselves, the apostles teach and they open their homes, they break bread together, they pray together, they worship together. It is genuine conversion. But see that this is only possible by the power of the Spirit and God's truth being shared with them. So for us in this room this afternoon, if you're struggling with the Christian life, can I encourage you, pick up God's word this week. Soak yourself in truth this week. Push away those whispering lies that you hear and hear the truth of God's word. Speak into your life. Soak yourself in it. Ask his spirit to do what he does, to lead you to truth, to remind you of the beauty of who Christ is, what the gospel is. As we look out across this city, can I encourage us to think? Think of our neighbours, think of our friends, think of our family. Think of all of those who are blind to the beauty of Jesus. And as we celebrate this week, reflect on the finished work of the cross and celebrate the resurrection. Not to be satisfied with just paying lip service and singing the songs and reading the scriptures. But to respond <coughs> rightly. To see how urgently our city needs truth. I love how Jesus looks out on the crowds in Matthew 9 and he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. Harassed and helpless. Matthew says that Jesus has compassion on them. Woe be to us, folks, if we end this week having an Easter celebration where it's just about us and we neglect to turn our eyes to those who need to hear the truth and the beauty of the gospel. Easter is all about Christ. But Christ is all about seeking and saving the lost. So would we compel ourselves by the power of God's Spirit to take his truth to those who need to hear this week. 
to overpower the lies that they have been fed and the cultural powers that are leading them away from Jesus and to pray that in the power of his spirit, God would open their eyes and help them to see Jesus for who he is, their Lord and their Saviour. Let's pray. Thank you that that is who you are. You are the Christ. You are the Lord of all creation. Thank you that you have mercifully allowed us to see that that is true. Thank you for the privileged position that we have amongst our world today. That that this afternoon as we gather... This is where the celebration is at. This is where the hope is found. This is where true joy is found. Thank you, Jesus, that you have saved us. Thank you that you have called us. Thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit. Father, we don't want to... We don't want to be vessels of the Spirit just to be people who would who would read your truth and, and be formed by it and be encouraged by it, and, and that is it. We want to be people who would be filled with your truth and take that truth to those who need to hear it. And so as we reflect on, on this week, on Passion Week, on, on the death of your son, on his resurrection, as we reflect on those things, remind us of the beauty of the gospel to us, compel us again with the beauty of the finished work of the cross, remind us of the power and the resurrection of your son, Jesus. Fill us with joy as we remember Pentecost and remember our filling with your spirit. But as you do that, burden us for this city. Praying for them isn't enough. Longing for them isn't enough. We need to go. So help us to take the truth to those who need to hear it this week. We pray against the enemy. We pray against the way that he will use that that minority in our culture to, to lead people away from truth. We recognize even how that work is apparent in our own lives, how we have embraced sin over Jesus this week, and we're sorry, Father. So help us, we pray. Jesus, we need you. This is all about you. It's not about us. It's not about this building. It's not even about this church. This is about you and your glory. So help us, we pray, by the power of your spirit to be the people that you've called us to be in this city, in this moment, in this time, for your glory. Amen.